Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Grung. I'm Asped Bedrosian. Thanks for listening to our podcasts. Please support us by subscribing to our channel and liking and sharing our podcasts. We are on most major media platforms, including YouTube, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. In this lightning conversation on Grung, we'll be talking about Russia's foreign policy perspectives towards the Caucasus in general and Artsakh Harapagh in particular. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, November 9, 2020. On November 9, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia signed the statement ending the war in Artsakh, known more commonly as nagorno karabakh Russia emerged as a major winner by ending the violence, introducing peacekeepers, and upholding its historical role as the regional referee in the Caucasus. What are Russia's interests in the region and in this agreement? To help us explore Russia's perspective and the outlook for peace in the region, we are joined by Pietro Shakarian, who is a historian and a PhD candidate in Russian history at The Ohio State University. His analyses on Russia, Armenia, and the post-Soviet space have appeared in several publications, including The Nation, The Cleveland Plain Dealer, The Russian International Affairs Council, Russia Direct, HETC, and more. Hello and welcome, Pietro. Hello, Asbed. It's a pleasure being here. All right. To set the context, Pietro, why is the South Caucasus so important to Russia? Are Russia's interests the same as they were 200 years ago as an expanding power in the region? Well, I would actually frame uh, the issue in a slightly different manner. We talk about South Caucasus and we talk about this as if it's completely divorced from North Caucasus, but this is a, I view this region as kind of an entirety. So why is the Caucasus region as a whole important to Russia? And I think that even if we look at the dissolution of USSR in 1991, even after that, it's still a very critically important region. First of all, if we back up, the post-Soviet space in general is extremely important to Russia. It's in the vital interest zone of of Russian strategic interests. So it's not something that they uh, can throw away. I mean, this is a region that expanded with the Russian Empire. Historically, this was part of the Russian Empire, then the USSR. So this is an area that's intimately linked with Russia, intimately linked with Russian security in general. And if we look at the issue of the Caucasus region, both the North and the South Caucasus, the South Caucasus, or Transcaucasia, that's another term for it, the area is inextricably linked with the security of the North Caucasus. So from the Russian point of view, it's in their interest to have stable and secure relations with the three countries south of the Greater Caucasus range, that is to say Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, they see that as kind of a necessity. Now, part of it, you talked about the 200-year context. When we look at the expansion of Russia into the Caucasus, it really begins in 1800-1801 with the annexation of the eastern Georgian kingdom, Kartli Kakheti. And so when Russia expands, uh, essentially the dilemma becomes they only have one road that leads into this region. So they annex Kartli Kakheti in 1800. Uh, Tsar Paul annexes it, but it is uh, Alexander I who officially incorporates it into the Russian Empire. And so then the security dilemma for the Russian state becomes, well, we have this new possession, Kartli Kakheti, how do you secure it? And so then they basically did kind of a collecting of Georgian lands. So they went to the west, they took Abkhazia, Imereti, Guria, Mingrelia, these would be taken in, and then they would expand to the south and east. So then they would take Ganja, they would take Baku, then they would expand south to uh, Yerevan, Echmiadzin, Nakichevan in 1820s, at the end of the 1820s. And all this was meant to more or less secure Kartli Kakheti. And then finally, they uh, pushed their conquest into the North Caucasus. 
they took that region as well, and it was all done to secure it. So from the outset, uh, even the Russian absorption of the North Caucasus was intimately linked with the history of the Russian absorption of the South Caucasus. So this is not, these are not regions that are mutually exclusive to each other. And so for Russian security, it's very, very extremely strategically important. In, in this context, Pietro, why is Karabakh important to Moscow today? Important mm. enough to actually commit its troops? And Karabakh had this importance. I mean, it was the Karabakh Maliks who encouraged the Russian Empire, who encouraged Peter the Great uh, first to come down to the Caucasus. I mean, they were one of the forces that encouraged the Russian expansion into the region. But if we're looking at in today's context, it was an area that more or less uh, the Russians could not control. It was an area that uh, there were no Russian peacekeepers in the whole post-Soviet space in a frozen conflict zone. There were no Russian peacekeepers. And uh, even though uh, the Armenians more or less kept the situation uh, stable, there were ceasefire violations throughout the whole period from 1994 to 2020, actually with the 2016 war in between. It was one area that the Russians could more or less not control. And they wanted to bring in peacekeepers much earlier. But in Armenia, there was kind of a division about this. There were some who said, well, it's, it would be a good thing because you have uh, somebody to defend our civilians. But also, maybe it's a bad thing because we don't control the situation on the ground suddenly than the Russians do. And Azerbaijan, for a long time, was against this idea. So now Russian peacekeepers are here. They're in this region. And now that they're here, it's extremely significant. It's extremely important for projecting their influence even beyond Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. It could almost be viewed as, in many ways, kind of like a new Kartli Kakheti, so a region that they can use to kind of project influence uh, in the broader area. I see. How does the Kremlin perceive the current leadership in Yerevan and Baku? Well, they kind of perceive them as hooligans. Uh, they look at Nikol Pashinyan as dangerously incompetent, unstable, unreliable, kind of almost on the level of like Saakashvili. Uh, there's a consensus in the uh, Russian leadership among all factions that Nikol Pashinyan is not a very effective leader, and he's also unreliable as a partner for the Kremlin. There has been a whole series of missteps he has made. I mean, many of his appointees going into the rise of his government, many of his appointees had anti-Russian records. Uh, he actually disrupted a lot of the uh, personal and institutional ties between Moscow and Yerevan. So people like uh, Khachatorov, these uh, individuals had connections with the Russian state, with Russian elites. Robert Kocharyan is another example. So when you go and you prosecute former authorities, that's a major problem. There's also kind of an unspoken rule in post-Soviet space that you do not prosecute your uh, predecessors. And Nikol Pashinyan basically violated this and decided to go and pursue uh, Robert Kocharyan and others uh, in these kind of criminal cases. The position of Russian uh, language was also undermined in Armenia during this period. And there was also some uh, significant flirtation with the West. I mean, even during this war, uh, Nikol Pashinyan was looking toward Macron in France. He was also writing a congratulatory letter to Joe Biden, basically encouraging him to get involved after he heard of his election. So you have all that kind of context. What about Aliyev? Is he perceived Aliyev, the same they way? see him as like a stereotypical I mean, in the Russian uh, viewpoint, in a kind of a classical kind of stereotypical Russian viewpoint, they see him as kind of Eastern Pasha or Khan, right? So an arrogant, right. autocratic, right. crafty, a constant liar, this sort of a thing. And he was involved, as we, sh we should not forget this, that he was involved in the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan pipeline, which more or less bypassed Russia to essentially create an alternative energy route to the West right. that would kind of not go through any kind of Russian area. Then also the 
Kabbalah radar base, the withdrawal from that in 2012, the participation in Guam, so with Georgia and Ukraine and Moldova. This I mean, in many thing. ways, if Pashinyan has an affinity on the Western partnerships, Aliyev has an affinity with the Turkish partnership. So, Well, yes, too, but also through Turkey, uh, there is also the connection with the West. Yes. And that's the other thing. So basically, Moscow views these two guys as being not really reliable partners either way. I mean, they ideally want to get both of them under reps. So when it comes to the Gharapal issue, how many towers are there to the Kremlin? What are the different factions within the Russian ruling elite, and how do the perceptions of the region differ among them? Well, I would first of all say that not, Russian politics is not all about Putin. There is kind of a misperception, especially in Western analyses, that this is basically uh, that the vertical vlasti, as everybody calls it. I mean, it does exist, but that the whole politics is, is dominated by Putin, and this is not a fact. This is not true. In reality, in the Russian ruling elite, you have different uh, political factions. You have a more liberal faction, and then you have also Siloviki security forces, and Putin kind of is the decider between these two. He has a little bit of both inside of him, right? So he was working for the liberal mayor of St. Petersburg in the 1990s, Anatoly Sobchak, and also he was a former KGB guy. So he has a little bit of both, and he's X is the decider. Kind of has echoes of the westernizers versus Slavophile debate within Russian history. There are also those who are kind of the mindset. Now, it does not necessarily fall along liberal conservative lines. Those who say, is the post-Soviet space still significant for us, or is it not? The majority, vast majority, of people in the Russian elite view the post-Soviet space as intimately linked to Russia. It's an area that Russia is not going to uh, withdraw from anytime soon. There's also the idea of the Ruski versus Rasiski, that is to say, ethnic Russian, Slavic Russian versus Russian in the broader sense. Do they have different ideas about a solution? Well, they uh, more or less have the idea that both uh, Pashinyan and Aliyev should be in line, that uh, you need to have more or less kind of a parity between these two sides. That's a consensus view from all factions in the Kremlin, that you cannot have it be too one-sided. If there is to be complete stability in this region, you have to have parity and you have to have a balance of power. In that context, what is an ideal solution then for Russia? I think that uh, it, it's not clear uh, because, you know, if you give it to either Armenia or Azerbaijan, you're tipping the balance in one way or the other. And the other problem is how do these people get along? Right, that's a major challenge going forward. I mean, if you want to have cohesion in the region, you want to have more or less influence in the region, these guys, these societies have to be more or less okay with each other. They have to be in order to allow coexistence with each other, right? So I think an ideal solution may be just to keep it in a neutral space. That's the one thing. I mean, and that would be one way to keep it stable because right. otherwise you don't want to give it to one party or the other. Uh, Aliyev is talking now about Karabakh without any territorial autonomy. That's completely unacceptable from the Kremlin's point of view. And that's why the Kremlin frequently says things like, well, the conflict has not been solved yet. Okay. So that's where we are right now, more or less. My next question is about how Turkey is viewed within the context of the Russian regional uh, strategy. Uh, well, Turkey is more or less viewed almost like a, um, a country that it can both cooperate with, but also as an adversary, right? So what Turkey did in this past conflict was really, really, really disliked in the Kremlin, which is to say they intruded in a part of the world that they view as intimately tied to their security sphere. It's a part of the world that they do not want to share uh, influence in. And this is a very key point, because even though Turkey had the concession in the end of the ceasefire monitoring center, they did not get what they wanted, which was a peacekeeping force in Karabakh. And that's very significant because the Russians, at the end of the day, do not want 
uh, the Turks to be sharing the region in any sense. Now, Azerbaijan can have Turkish troops in Azerbaijan proper or whatnot, but Russia has been very adamant about allowing any Turkish influence in Karabakh itself, including even in the former conflict zone, by the way. So most likely this ceasefire monitoring center is going to be in Barda. It's, it's going yeah. to be kind of, I guess you could say, in the greater Karabakh, but not in the area of the conflict zone of Karabakh, which is very significant. Right. So, and, and in the broader sense, the fact that Aliyev used military force to solve a frozen conflict, that's really something the Kremlin also dislikes as well. And Erdogan is now trying his luck in Donbass. You know, he did not get fully what he wanted in Karabakh, so now he's trying his luck in, in Donbass as well with Zelensky. That's something also the Kremlin takes very, very seriously and is, is not uh, too thrilled about. Uh, Finally, Pietro, uh, let's talk a little bit about the November statement and beyond. Mm -hmm. What does Russian intervention mean? It means, number one, an end to violence. Number two, it means securing influence in the region. And number three, it means uh, more or less saving a strategic ally from complete defeat. So Armenia, in the way in which the war was going, was not very good. Uh, the Armenia and Artsakh were about to completely lose if it had not been for that Russian intervention at the last moment, which is extremely crucial. So now we have to think, where are the challenges moving forward? As the Russians would say, Vostok diela tonkaya, right? So right. the East is a delicate matter. And... Now they have to think about uh, stabilizing the situation. They have Rustam Maradov, who is the commander of the peacekeeping forces. This is somebody who, uh, during Donbass, he survived this massive assault of, he was under fire of grenade launchers, anti-aircraft systems, and large caliber machine guns for 20 minutes, and somehow he miraculously survived, so he's a pretty tough guy. He is kind of the leader, the commander of the peacekeeping forces of Tabasaran nationality, of Dagestani nationality. Right. And now the idea mainly for Russia is to kind of demine the place, demilitarize the place, bring normal life back, encourage refugees to return, try to get the POWs back, to try more or less kind of stabilize the situation from the fighting, to end the violence, first of all, and to kind of stabilize the situation. Uh, but in the long term, they're going to find it difficult because like Kartli Kakheti, where we talk about Kartli Kakheti being connected to Russia by a single road, which was Georgian military highway, now you have a situation where they have a single road connecting Karabakh to Armenia, which is Lachin Corridor, and that, I think, in the end, may not prove to be sufficient enough for the Russians. They need something more substantial to secure their influence in the region. So it remains to be seen. They want to encourage Armenians from Karabakh to return right. to Karabakh I think, itself. I think the, it's a big, the big population thing. is very important for them. It's extremely important. Actually, that's if there is no not a significant enough uh, number of Karabakh Armenians to return, or if there are no Karabakh Armenians, then there's no Karabakh conflict, right? There's no reason to have peacekeepers. So now that, let's say, phase one of stabilizing is achieved, what are the main challenges and opportunities you see in front of Moscow? Well, the biggest one is how to deal with the leadership in Yerevan, first and foremost. Now, the focus is very much Moscow. They're watching the situation. They're looking at what's happening in Yerevan. And uh, so even though Putin has had polite statements about Nikol Pashinyan, the reality is the vast majority of the Russian elite dislikes Pashinyan. They don't find him to be reliable or stable. He's a loose cannon. And Putin uh, shares his point of view, even though he will say, well, you know, He's, maybe he's not a traitor, that he's courageous for making this deal. But in reality, the assessment of Pashinyan and his performance is much more negative. And so, first of all, they want to see who's going to come to power in Yerevan, how the situation is going to stabilize there. And then they're going to turn their attention to Baku, where Aliyev has been gloating way too much. He has been kind of very, very much pushing the line in terms of provocations. And the MI-24 helicopter incident is still not forgotten in Moscow. Next is going to be, how do you kind of stabilize the situation between these two countries?
how do you get them to establish a parity? Interesting. So as a final question, is Moscow, as Pushkin would say, a prisoner of the Caucasus? I think I think so uh, for, for the indefinite uh, future, because this region is so intimately linked with Russia. It's not going to be out of their influence anytime soon. Even Georgia, which really, really is striving to go for the Western orientation, which is to say NATO and EU. At the end of the day, uh, I, I think that the United States' uh, influence in Georgia, the Western influence in Georgia, can only be sustained so much because Georgia is so far away. I think that the Georgians will have to come to some sort of reconciliation with Moscow eventually. So in the, in the bottom line is Moscow, this is a region of immense strategic importance for them. They will not be leaving anytime soon. It is a part of the world that is very much in their purview. All right. We well, that is all the time we have. I thank you for taking the time with us, Pietro. Thank you very much, Osbet. I appreciate you having me on. That concludes this lightning conversation on Gurung. We hope it has helped your understanding of some of the issues involved. We look forward to your feedback, including your suggestions for future topics. Contact us on our website at grung.org or on our Facebook page, ANN-Grung, or in our Facebook group, Grung-Armenian News Network. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.